How can you achieve and maintain business growth? Harvard Business School Executive Education is now accepting applications for a new program, Driving Profitable Growth. Taking place in Boston from October 25th through the 28th, this program focuses on business expansion and organizational growth strategies that can lead your company into the future. Learn more about this three-day program for senior leaders by visiting hbs.me growth. That's hbs.me growth. Today's episode of the Locked On Knicks podcast is brought to you by SeatGeek, the best and easiest way to purchase tickets for concerts or sporting events. Download the SeatGeek mobile app, Go to the Settings tab and click Add a Promo Code. Then enter the promo code LONIX and SeatGeek will send you $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase. Download the SeatGeek app and enter the promo code LONIX today. You are Locked On Knicks, your daily podcast on the New York Knicks, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Yeah. Uh, my city and wide. Yeah, let me take my time. I'm on my grind. Gotta make sure that we shine. What's yours is mine, and what's mine is yours. HR to the death and first always my team for sure. Can't fall off, gotta family support. Gotta make sure you succeed and reach our dream. Now live through me, I'm about to take off. Hello, and welcome to the Lockdown Knicks podcast. This is episode 142. I am your host, Jared Dubin. This is the sixth in our series of podcasts on 2017 NBA Draft Prospects. Just in case you missed the first five episodes on French point guard Frank Nielakina, Kansas forward Josh Jackson, Washington point guard Markel Fultz, Arizona forward slash center Lowry Markinen, and Kentucky guard Malik Monk, let me give you an overview of how this is working. Uh, there will be 10 of these podcasts leading up to the draft lottery. They're in a completely random order. I put the 10 prospects that people told me they wanted to hear about in an order randomizer, and this is the order that they came out in. So don't read anything at all into who goes first, who goes last, or anything in between. Uh, in each episode, I will talk to Sam Vecini, whose work you might know from CBS, Sporting News, Vice, and elsewhere. I talk to him about each prospect's best-case scenario, their worst-case scenario, and their most likely career path in the NBA. That gives you sort of a holistic view of what each player is like and where they might fit into the NBA ecosystem. As you'll hear me say throughout the podcast series, I tend to place more weight on the most likely career path as opposed to the ceiling or floor, uh, as many other evaluators do. Uh, I explain why within those podcasts. After I hang up with Sam, I talk to Brian Giberman, who I've had on this podcast several times. We talk mostly about how each player might fit with the Knicks based on a variety of criteria that I mostly took from an email sent to me by a listener named Q. Uh, I adjusted Q's system a bit. So Brian and I grade each prospect on a scale from 1 to 5 in the following categories. Current talent, star potential, fit with Kristaps Porzingis, defensive potential, and fit in the triangle offense. The last point may only be a short-term concern because Phil Jackson isn't likely to be around for the long haul and the next regime isn't likely to retain the triangle, but triangle fit does seem likely to factor heavily into Phil and his staff's evaluations, so we had to include it. Uh, after that, Brian and I discuss whether the player has the potential to be better than Porzingis at his peak. The hope is that by talking about each player purely as a prospect and then talking about how he fits with the Knicks, you get a pretty good overview. Uh, definitely let me know if you like the podcasts and if there's anything else you want to hear about these guys because I want to make them as informative as possible. I'm trying to give a lot of detail about what you can expect if the Knicks make any of these selections because this is you know, a really big pick for the future of the franchise, obviously. So like I said, you can expect 10 of these podcasts over the next couple of weeks as well as a couple more Mellow Trade podcasts as well, depending on the availability of guys as the teams they cover get knocked out of the playoffs. I don't want to keep running on here, so let's get you to the first part of the podcast talking about UCLA point guard Lonzo Ball with Sam Vecini. But before that, a quick word from today's sponsor, SeatGeek. Buying tickets online for sports and concerts has been a confusing process for a long time. It's always been hard to find the best deal for that game or show you want to go to, and none of those older ticket sites want to change that. SeatGeek is different. They've come along and created an amazing app and website that makes it easier than ever for fans to buy and sell tickets. You want to go to a Yankee game this summer? 
You want to go to a Mets game this summer? You want to go to the NBA draft? You want to go to some concert you want to go to over the summer? Sit outside at one of those stadiums? Sit inside at the Garden or somewhere else? Use SeatGeek. It's always the first place I go to look for tickets to a game or concert. I have the app on my phone. It's very, very easy. SeatGeek is designed to make life easier for sports and music fans. They do all the price comparison for you by searching multiple ticket sites and ensuring that you get the best possible deal. SeatGeek does the work. You save time and money. And SeatGeek wants to help you get the most bang for your buck. That's why every ticket on SeatGeek is given a grade based on value. You'll immediately see any underpriced seats and be able to find the best deals that fit your budget. Best of all, Locked On Knicks listeners get a $20 rebate off their first SeatGeek purchase. To get your $20 rebate, download the SeatGeek mobile app. Go to the settings tab and click add a promo code. Then enter the promo code LONIX. SeatGeek will then send you $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase. Download the SeatGeek mobile app and enter the promo code LONIX today. Sam, thank you for coming back, man. As always, much appreciated. Yeah, for sure. It's it's always uh, it's always a joy to talk about NBA draft prospects, and I think that we, uh, you know, we've got one of the most interesting ones today. That's for sure. Absolutely, we're talking Lonzo Ball, six six, UCLA point guard, uh, averaged fourteen point six points on fifty five percent shooting, forty one percent from three on five point four attempts a game. Six rebounds, 7.6 assists, 0.8 steals, 1.8 blocks. Uh, Sam, before we talk about Lonzo's best case, worst case, most likely scenario, what do you have to tell people about him as a player and as a prospect? So yeah, like like Jared said, six foot six point guard, you know, has incredible vision. I think that you can't really emphasize that enough. He might be the best passer to come through the NBA draft in the last decade. Um, his vision is preternatural. He's also not a guy that pounds the ball though, right? Like, you know, a lot of point guards like Rajon Rondo is considered this incredible passer, but he pounds the ball on the perimeter and kind of fosters assists for himself that way by always having the ball in his hands. Lonzo is the opposite. Lonzo always keeps the ball moving up the floor. Doesn't care if he's the one that gets credit for the assists, just wants to get easy, efficient offense for his teammates, either via a hockey assist or via head manning the ball. You know, it was kind of striking how often he was not the guy to bring the ball up the floor this year for UCLA on the break, which they were on so regularly this year because he was often head manning the ball, outletting the ball to other players that could get the ball up the floor in a quicker manner than he does. He just has an innate understanding of how to get efficient offense for any organization that he's going to be a part of. Um, The downside is is that he's not this hyper elite athlete, not a great, uh, not necessarily super comfortable yet in the pick and roll. Uh, You know, the shooting is going to be a concern and a question mark going forward for him. But, uh, you know, there's just so much talent here to work with at six foot six as a point guard. He obviously, I think, has a really high floor for all of those reasons. Um, We'll mention LeVar here at the top, the LeVar ball factor, the big baller brand factor. Yeah, no, I know. It's it's not like he's been in the news nonstop for the last decade and a half, it seems like. Um, no, I think the key to mention with LeVar, and it's something that, you know, everyone brings up, is LeVar ball hurting his son's draft stock? Is it going to stop teams from taking him? LeVar is not going to stop teams from selecting Lonzo. If you like Lonzo Ball, uh, you're not going to stop yourself from taking him because LeVar is attached, basically. Uh, you know, NBA organizations, they basically run separate from the parents, right? Like, it's not like you often hear about, uh, you know, LeBron's mom running in uh, the locker room and doing stuff like that. And, you know, having, you know, being out here in Los Angeles, I can tell you LeVar was not a problem for the UCLA coaching staff this year. Uh, You know, like he wasn't like in the locker room after games complaining. He wasn't like, you know, calling Steve Alford every day saying, do this, do that. Like his reputation kind of gives it Uh, in terms of on the floor stuff. I don't think Lonzo is going to be affected by LeVar Ball one bit. Lonzo is a very different human being than LeVar. Lonzo is poised, confident, uh, you know, 
very quiet kid, very stoic in a lot of ways. He uh, handles pressure exceedingly well. Um, having said that, uh, you know, LeVar is boisterous and loud and uh, NBA, the NBA team that selects him is going to have to deal with LeVar on the fringes, I think, uh, of their organization in terms of, uh, you know, he's going to talk, he's going to be in the headlines, he's going to be in the news. That's not going to be for everyone, but I don't think it's going to stop teams from taking him either. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, two things there. Uh, I've sort of opted out of the LeVar Ball experience for now. Um, I just choose to, like, just not really pay attention to whatever it is that's going on there. Um, I understand people that are enthralled by it. Uh, I have enough to, to worry about and to, and to think about and to write about. So I, I've, I've chosen to have him just be this guy that kind of exists on the periphery of one of the better prospects in the draft. Um, right. Yeah. What I'll say about LeVar too, I think that LeVar gets a little bit of bad rap for like, you know, the boisterousness ultimately his heart and in his, you know, brain he is. And I can tell you like, he's an awesome father. Like he is taking care of these three kids and he believes that he's helping them uh, foster their skills and get them to where they want to go in life. Um, he's betting on himself, betting on the kids with big baller brand. And you know, that's to be commended in some way. I just wish that he would do it better than he is right now. Yeah. I've just sort of like zoned it out. And I think that a team that drafts him, if they can just sort of do the same and just be like, here's this guy. He wants his kid to succeed. He's trying to help him succeed. And he exists on the periphery of our organization. I think that that's something that that can sort of work out for whatever team drafts him. And it doesn't have to be a giant thing. There are some teams that would turn it into a giant thing. um, And and that's not the the best case scenario. (laughs) Um, But let's, uh, let's talk about Lonzo as an actual player. Um, the best case scenario, you know, you mentioned it, uh, sort of tangentially in, uh, you know, in your overview of him as a player, the best case scenario is that he's a franchise changing offensive player that is basically an elite offense unto himself because of the way not only he plays, but because of the way he gets his teammates to play like watching UCLA, he is an infectious player, um, you know, specifically on offense, he gets, the guys on his team to move the ball, to want to move the ball, to move around on the court. And he doesn't dominate the ball. Like you said, he, he gets it moving no matter where it is. If the guy's open, he gets the ball to that guy and he expects that guy to do the same. And, you know, in, in the best case, he is out in the open floor all the time, finding the open man, inspiring teammates to find the open man, knocking down his shot. Like he did while he was at UCLA and, you know, being like, you know, the, the taller Jason kid that people talk about in the best case scenario. Yeah. Culture changing offensive dynamo is basically what he can be, you know, decade long all-star if everything breaks right. Like, you know, there's a reason that people have him at number two. I personally do not. I think that we can get into the downsides of what his game are whenever we talk about the weaknesses, but the strengths are so strong, right? Like this is a guy that uh, just automatically understands how to run an offense. He can step in immediately, be your point guard, uh, you know, score probably 16 points a game on step back jumpers on three pointers. He obviously has range out to 28 feet from three understands how to get shots at the rim, how to get efficient shots at three, uh, you know, a really just ridiculously good offensive player. And, The defense, you know, he's a switchable defensive player. At least he's not great at the point of attack on point guards, but at six foot six, six foot seven wingspan, six foot eight wingspan, you know, he's going to be able to guard all the way down to some threes, I think, in the NBA. And I think he's going to be a little bit better at defending off the ball. We kind of saw that a little bit throughout this season. He was much better at defending guys like Dylan Brooks, who probably profiles more as a three than he was at defending elite players like De'Aaron Fox, who is just hyper quick and going to be able to get in and out of the lane like no problem problem um i i just believe that if you put him in the right situation and again he's a very situationally dependent player uh you don't want to run a slow down offense with him uh you don't want to run like what the grizzlies or jazz do in terms of you know hanging your hat a little bit more on defense game in game out but 
if you believe in him as an offensive dynamo who's going to run your offense and you know get you a top five offense around shooting and around uh, you know getting shots in transition and at the rim. You probably believe Lonzo Ball should be the top overall pick in this draft. And, you know, if you're a believer and, you know, I, I wouldn't blame you. I would not put anything past this kid. I haven't been around him now for a year. Uh, you know, UCLA, I, I totally buy into that. Yeah, I um, I don't think it's insane to take him at number one. Like, I would, I would take Fultz. That's where I'm at. But if a team is like, this is what we want to do. Like, you know, we want to get up and down the floor. We want to be a team that, that moves the ball all over the court, shoots a ton of threes, plays at, like, you know, 110 possessions a game. Like, I do not think it is crazy to just be like, we're going to take this kid and let him do what he does. Um, and I think, like you mentioned, there's there's defensive upside in there, too. Uh, I think even within the best-case scenario, there will probably be still uh, some struggles with on-ball defense. Um, but I think that, He's really smart and knows where the ball's going to go defensively, and he could be a very, very high steal rate kind of guy and contribute defensively that way. You know, he averaged, uh, like I mentioned earlier, 1.8 steals a game uh, at UCLA, and I think he could be like a similar kind of steals player uh, in the NBA as well. And if he, you know, learns positioning more and timing even more, um, he could get you know even further above that potentially. Um, there, there's there's some room for growth on that side of the ball as well. So it's it's not just you know within the best case scenario that he is changing the level of offense that you can play, but I think he can in again within the best case scenario can affect the game defensively too. Even if he's not a guy that you stick out there and say go stop that guy in front of you. Yeah, no, that's all I think. That's all correct. Yeah, I do think it would be crazy to take him at number one, uh, mostly because of this next section that we'll talk about. Yeah, oh, like, you know, the down, I'm saying if you were a team that believed, uh, you know, in what I mentioned, then you just want it to be run and gun all the time, infectious, passing, shooting a million threes a night. Like, if the Rockets were like, we're going to take him number one, that wouldn't be insane to me, um, just because of, you know, the way they do what they want to do, but I still would take Fultz number one. Um, let's talk about the worst case scenario. Um, and, and this is more, I think, than just downside risk here. Like there, there is worst case scenario, like that he can't play on the ball just because he can't create off the dribble. Yeah, no, I think that that's a very significant question right now. Uh, is he a guy that you can trust late in the shot clock to create an efficient look in a pick and roll setting. Um, This is a guy that, uh, you know, I think that one thing that has gone a little bit underreported about his game, I don't think he has like a phenomenal handle right now, uh, especially in traffic. Like I think that he can get stripped a little bit. I think that, uh, you know, he he really needs to improve in terms of the way that, uh, you know, he's able to change direction basketball wise, you know, change of pace is fine. And, you know, he's okay once he gets a guy on his hip and once he gets a guy on his back, but getting there and using that first step to get there, he's not this hyper elite guy. And, you know, we mentioned free throw rate when we talked about Malik Monk, uh, you know, just around three, three free throws per 46 or per 40 minutes. Uh, th- that's not a fantastic rate. Doesn't get to the rim uh, on the ball a crazy amount. He's definitely a guy that can create off the ball and cut off the ball and get to the rim. And we've seen it as, uh, you know, he jumps off of two feet for those, uh, you know, alley-oop dunks that are thrown by Aaron Holiday or TJ Leaf, but not a great one-foot leaper in my opinion. Um and that's something that, you know, affects your ability to create shots at the basket off the dribble because you're not going right. to be able to, you know, full step gather for the most part in the paint. Right. Right. So then you also look at the fact that his turnover rate, 18.6, not like a total red flag. Typically I say red flags like right around like 19 or 20, but pretty close to something you should be concerned about uh if you're drafting him like again i like i said a guy that tries to do a little a a lot with the ball but can also get stripped a little bit because he's not that strong in terms of handle now the key for all of this is is that lonzo if his body continues to fill out everything's going to come into place he's going to become more explosive he's going to become uh considerably stronger uh, throughout the time that he continues to play basketball. 
how much does that help? We'll see. But there are very real downsides to his game, and especially defensively. I mean, this was a guy that, you know, he was sometimes very useful defensively when he was engaged. Not always, though. Uh, you know, we saw it against Dylan Brooks. We saw it against, you know, Markel Fultz, where he really wanted to take those players out of the game. But against a guy like, uh, you know, Washington State's point guard like Malachi Flynn or Ikarogbu or something like that. Uh, he wasn't fantastic by any stretch of the imagination. And I just randomly threw out a couple of names, but like he he really needs to you know focus in defensively and improve his game that way uh, in order to reach his ceiling. And uh, you know if, if you end up becoming a guy that can't create your own offense can't uh and actually we haven't even gotten to what i consider to be one of the biggest parts of the problem of his game i don't know that he's going to be able to shoot off the dribble going right yeah that's Uh, where i was going next like i was going to say like you know you you went through the whole thing there talking about the defense when you know most of the things that people talk about as the downside risk with him are about the offense which you know is like sort of universally considered like he should be fine there but there is a bunch of downside risk because of the the hitch in that jumper and you can go through you know the mechanics of it more better than i can but you know you i think it was you that wrote something earlier in the year um whatever it was i read something earlier in the year where he took like one jumper off the dribble going to his right all season before the tournament which that is correct yes for a point guard is just crazy and you know whatever it is you know he brings the ball up from the left side of his body when he wants to shoot um, and that could be a huge problem if teams force him hard right. I think even if they do, though, like he sees the court so well that I don't think it's quite as big of an issue as maybe some other people do, but not being able to create your own look off the dribble is like the big separation between him and Fultz and why, like, you know, Fultz should be the number one pick because he not doesn't only create for others but also creates for himself and you know at point guard these days you really really need that and um, I think even in the best case scenario that's probably still going to be an issue for him just because of the way he loads up that shot and in the worst case scenario it becomes you know a major hindrance to your offense because you have a guy that can really only go one way to get his own look and that forces him to basically play only on the right side of the court because teams will either force him that way or you want to start him off there so that he can actually access the middle and that limits what you can do offensively but but like i said though the defense there's like you spent the whole time talking about that defensively when what most people concert um you know concentrate on in terms of the downside risk is the offense there's there's real concerns there defensively too Right. No, for sure. And, you know, a lot of this comes back to this idea of the modern NBA, right? So can you be an elite point guard without being an elite scorer? Because I I don't think really anyone thinks Lonzo is going to become this elite level scoring point guard, right? Um, Like 15 a game, like where he was this year seems like, you know, even in his best case scenario, that's probably where he'll be. So, yeah, like say he even averages like 18 a game, you know, can you lead? Can are you a worthwhile offensive dynamo at the lead guard position if you are only averaging 18 points a game? You look at all of the best point guards in the NBA right now. Who are the best point guards in the NBA right now? Stephen Curry, elite level efficient scorer. Russell Westbrook led the league in points per game this year. James Harden second in points per game this year. Um, John Wall, elite level scorer who has, you know, turned into a guy that is at least trustworthy from the mid range and can occasionally knock down a three. Isaiah Thomas, elite level scorer. the, The one guy who's in that conversation who isn't like a, you know, 20 plus a game scorer is Chris Paul and he's the fucking point god. You know, like, yeah, no, I mean, Chris Paul, that that's basically Lonzo. Like Lonzo needs to become Chris Paul at six foot six. It's possible. He is incredible. Lonzo ball is absolutely unbelievable uh, in terms of basketball IQ and in turn, like Lonzo might be the only person that rivals 
Chris Paul's basketball IQ in this draft, right? Or like could theoretically one day rival Chris Paul's unbelievable basketball IQ. Um, do you think he's going to do that? I don't know. And then the other idea is Chris Paul for my money. And I know a lot of people talk about Kyrie with this. Chris Paul for me has the best handle in the NBA. Uh, he is able to weave in and out of traffic like nobody else can. And while Kyrie can do a lot of really cool things uh, in terms of dribbling the basketball, I think Chris Paul's dribble is a little bit more functional in a way. So he needs, that's where Lonzo needs to develop his game more. He needs to become this unbelievable ball handler. He's a good, he's not like a great ball handler now. He's a fine, like average to above average ball handler right now. He needs to become basically an elite ball handler uh, who can really, really handle the basketball in traffic. Yeah, and that also like would open up so much more of what he does well. You yes. Know, like if he has the ball really on a string, you know, like you see, like you mentioned, like Kyrie or Chris Paul, or uh, I'm, I'm trying to think who else is in that conversation. But Kemba you know, is one. Kemba has that kind of thing. Steph now has that kind of ball For handling. Sure. Like he gets a little bit loose with it, but that's part of his tight handle, if that makes sense. Um, yeah. You know, he he puts the ball wherever he wants it. He just does it a little bit more, you know, loose and wide than than someone like Chris or even Kyrie does. Um, if, if Lonzo Steph could get would be to that. the ideal, right, for Lonzo, because Lonzo's right. a little bit bigger. He's going to play a little bit more wild in terms of the way that he does it, but he just needs to tighten it up a little bit. Yeah, and maybe not dribble, like, quite as high, you know? Um, yeah. You know, because that's 6'6". Six, six, He's a little bit know? of a high dribble, for sure. You know, and big ball handlers are more susceptible to somebody swiping that in. Jared, look, God damn it. If you're... Uh, did, you, did you really just drop a big ball? Oh, God, I did. <laughs> I said big. I did say big ball handlers, not big ballers. Um, but yeah, look, I think it's okay if he averages a bunch of turnovers. Like if he's affecting your offense the way sure. you want him to, um, that's that's fine by me. Like I'm not quite as bothered by high turnover rates, especially now with how much point guards really do have control of every single aspect of the offense. I don't think it's quite as big a deal if a guy has an individually, you know high turnover rate as long as the this teams is where you want it to be. Um, yeah. Let's, yep. let's talk about most likely scenario, which I think is super interesting for him. And like, you could talk yourself into like any number of things being the most likely scenario for him. Yeah. Look, I mean, I have Lonza at number four on my board right now. I tend to be someone who falls into the camp that you do need to be an elite scorer at the lead guard position. Now, um, it wouldn't be crazy to me if he developed into that. I just kind of think that there's a lot of downside there. Um, so I look at Lonzo. I think that he will be a, you know, I, I guess I would say like eight to 12, top eight to 12 point guard in the NBA, more than this hyper crazy elite point guard in the NBA. Uh, you know, he'll probably make a couple of all-star games. Uh, I think that he will be a really really good basketball player don't know that he is the number one overall pick number two overall pick yeah i think in the most likely case scenario it's like a little bit better version of what he did at ucla offensively with more of the defensive concerns that we mentioned you right. know the on ball and here's here's the other thing too he is so dependent on where he goes because ucla this year was basically tailor-made for him. They were able to surround him with three other shooters, four other shooters, really, if you consider Thomas Welsh, who is maybe the best mid-range shooter in all of college basketball, and that's not an exaggeration. Um, he needs to go to the right situation, for sure. Yeah, you, If you're taking him, like you need to commit to playing you know, the way Chino Hills played, the way UCLA played. Like If, if yep. you're not doing that, there's no reason for you to have him on your team, basically. Yep. Um, and you know what? Like, I make fun of this fit a decent amount because I make fun of this team a decent amount. I would trust Sacramento to do that. Like, I think that they would build around him and Buddy Heald in that manner, and it would be a really interesting experiment. I trust the Lakers to do that. They would get back to showtime. They would get out and run. They would do everything like that. Um, I think Boston would work because I think Brad Stevens would be able to develop on the break plays that would really fit Lonzo's game. 
it's yeah, I mean, look, there's, there's the a Dallas, lot of- I think, would work too, for sure. Like, there are other teams. I, I just wonder about, like, you know, what if he ends up in Orlando where, uh, you know, Frank Vogel is going to want to play a little bit slower. He's not going to be as committed to opening up the floor for Lonzo. And, and what happens with Frank Vogel the first time Lonzo, like, you know, doesn't execute the defensive scheme exactly as he wants it because he wants to gamble for steals, yep. you know? Like, that's that's something you have to be willing to live with if you're going to have him also. Like, yeah. it's... Maybe, and, and, you know, we've talked about scheme-dependent for Jonathan Isaac and Malik Monk, the last two guys we've talked about. Um, I think I might have said Malik is the most scheme-dependent player in this draft, or I said he's more scheme-dependent than Isaac. I think Lonzo is the most scheme-dependent player in this draft. Uh, yeah, he is. Like you have to commit your team to playing the way that he wants to play. Otherwise, there's there's just no reason to do it. Like you don't draft this kind of guy if you're not going to play that way. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. No. 100. percent. And, uh, and I think that if you do commit to playing that way, the the upside is so great that it should, like, even if it doesn't fully work out in the best possible case, the most likely case if you commit to playing that way is that he has a very strong effect on your offense in a positive way. And and that's true, I think, even if he doesn't develop the kind of off-the-bounce scoring game that the elite point guards have. So to me, you know, the, the most likely case is, you know, even if, like you mentioned, the effect is only that he's one of the top 8 to 12 point guards overall, the mm-hmm. effect that he has offensively, will will change your team for the better in a very very strong way um and, yeah absolutely and, where, and where would you take him if you were the knicks um I, you know it's it's so much depends on if they're willing to commit to playing that way if they are the way he opens up porzingis yeah with his skill set like take him number two like if they're willing to commit to playing the way Lonzo wants to play, then to me, he's the guy they should take after faults. Um, if Do we not, think Phil Jackson will be there after the next two years? That's ultimately no. what it comes down to. No. But, like, does the next two years of playing in a completely different way hinder his development enough that you can't get back to it two years from now? And I think that's a real concern, too. Yeah. If I was New York at number two... I think I would probably take Jason Tatum and I would probably take Josh Jackson before I would take Lonzo. Cause I just don't know that I trust them to run the scheme that would be necessary. Yeah. I guess you're a little bit less high on, on him in terms of like the way he affects things than I am, you know, even in, yeah. even in your best case scenario. Um, and that's, you know, totally understandable because the concerns, even within the best case scenario, um, are very real. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, look, if, it's, if they're going to say, we're going to run and commit to this, him and Chris Dabbs would be unbelievable together because of the way that they would each open up the floor for each other. Like, you're concerned about his ability to create off the dribble. Stick him next to a seven foot three guy that can shoot from thirty five feet, and then mm-hmm. see how much room he has to create off the dribble. You know, yep. um, and you know you're concerned about Chris Dabbs creating his own shot. Give him this guy who creates shots in his sleep. And you know I'll talk that talk about that more with Brian next. But Ooh, can yeah. can we talk about the Chris Dabbs thing real quick? Yeah, like the fact that you know. The, there's the Ian Begley thing that came out. Yeah, about... I hacked Chris Depps' account. I just want to let everybody know. Okay, I, I tweeted those emojis. I know how to use emojis. Uh, it was all me, obviously. Yeah. Um, why do why do people think that like teams calling the Knicks about Chris Depps is a problem? Like, of course they're going to call. <laughs> yeah, you'd be like any of the tw- 29 other teams that didn't call, the GM should be fired. Right. Like, I, I don't know what, you know, why wouldn't you be worried? Like, why wouldn't, you know, the Knicks are not going to trade him. Like, if they're having substantive talks on Chris Stapp's Porzingis, that's a problem. But otherwise, like, it's fine that they're calling about Chris Stapp's. Like, it's totally okay that these other organizations are trying to get, you know, a steal of a deal, getting one of the five most valuable uh, trade chips in the entire NBA right now. Yeah, that's called, like, 
doing your do- doing your job, doing due diligence. Like you have to put in that call after you know he skipped his exit meeting and left the country. Like, yeah. What do we know? think? Chris Stapps is one of the five. I, I want. I've not like thought this out fully, but like he's probably he's definitely in the top ten in terms of like most valuable trade chips in the NBA. Yeah, I would I would say that he is. I don't know about the top five. Like you would go, you know. Giannis Davis and Towns certainly are ahead of him. Yeah. Um, um, you know, I'm trying to think off the top of my head. Like, even guys, the thing is. Like, Durant the has this league year, league. and that's it. Uh, right. Westbrook has, not, has, right. this, has next year, and that's it. Even those guys, though, are, I, I think, still more valuable trade chips. I don't. If you're talking about, like, if you want to say he's one of the five to ten most valuable five to ten year future assets then yes i'm right there with you but you still get more in a trade for durant than you do for porzingis i think i don't think durant because you wouldn't have bird rights with durant yet but russ you would get more for russ because russ you'd have bird rights um but i got asked an interesting question last night would you trade more for chris stapps or paul george i would trade more for chris stapps yeah i mean i i think i probably Oh God! It depends where my team is at. Mm-hmm. If Paul George is putting over the top, on like you know. But look, like I wouldn't even think twice. I, I, hopefully, I, for Knicks fans' sake, we don't have to worry about this, and they keep him and get one of these top prospects, and that guy makes Chris Apps better, and Chris Apps makes that guy better. That's the ideal scenario here, and trading him is not like. Can we stop being this stupid team that gets? players and they never get better with the Knicks and then you trade them and then they're awesome elsewhere and can we not trade the best thing to happen to the team in 30 years like let's just yeah. let's stop doing this nonsense okay yeah um John Wall probably gets more than Chris Stapps too now that I think about it and John Wall would be oh my god if John Wall played for the Knicks and with Chris Stapps like good lord <laughs> yeah um Real quick, though, I also want to point out Chris Stapps, uh, this is a number that I tweeted out earlier this weekend, became the first player in NBA history this past season to average uh, 1.5 threes, two blocks on 35% three-point shooting over the course of an entire season. This season, he's 21 years old and became the first person in NBA history to do that. Uh, I have a question about that. Uh, unbelievably good. Is that good? Like, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure is that good. Uh, anyway, uh, and, uh, the other the other thing that I want to point out too, I, I've noticed that like he gets a little bit of crap defensively. Uh, you know, he's not a great. He, he doesn't instinctually kind of understand things around him yet that are happening. Like he he doesn't read plays defensively all that well. Uh, he struggles a little bit in space because he's still like he's still developing coordination, kind of. You know what I mean? Like he he still like kind of stumbles a little bit in space. Also, he might have been like one of the three best rim protectors in the NBA this year, though. Right, that's where I was gonna go. Like he was great around the basket. It was on the perimeter where you know he wasn't really uh, a very good defender. And yeah, just play him at center, guys. <laughs> anyway, no, the, uh, it's it's really like quite simple. Just play him at center. Uh, he was, you know, in terms of. Uh, you know, defensive, it's like, you know, rim protection is what you call it, like shots defended within five feet of the rim. He was like sixth or seventh in terms of, uh, you know, those shots being defended and contested. And then he only allowed those shots to go in at a 43% clip or something. Yeah, like he was, he was you know, Ruby Gobert around the uh, rim. Yeah. Among guys that challenged like five shots a game or more, he was in the top five in you know, field goal yeah. percentage allowed at the rim. So, you know, just got to get him in position to do that more often. Um, and how do yeah. you do that? You play him at center. Um, yeah. Anyway, 100%. Sam, thank you for talking Lonzo Ball with me. And, uh, you know, we'll be back uh, with more guys next week. Thanks again, man. Appreciate it. Yep. Thanks, Jared. Brian, how are you, man? Thanks for coming back and doing this once again. No, I'm good. Ready to roll here. Let's just get right into it. We're talking about Lonzo Ball. And uh, as we have on the previous versions of this podcast, we're going to rank ball in five categories from one to five. Current talent, star potential, fit with Kristaps Porzingis, defensive potential, and fit in the triangle offense. 
And then at the end, we'll talk about whether or not he could potentially be better than Kristaps Porzingis. Brian, current talent, where did you come down on Lonzo Ball? One to I'll five. Go with a five. His passing and his shooting percentages were quite terrific for a point guard at UCLA. And that offense was just absolutely killer. And he was the one who initiated it all. The concerns... 67% from the free throw line is a sign that maybe that shooting isn't going to hold up at the next level. So that's a little bit worrisome. Secondly, and this is something I learned from watching. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a Michigan fan and watch for people that don't know. And watching John Beeline runs a unique offense in college that actually maximizes spacing, gives players freedom. They run a ton of pick and roll. And at first, I always thought that was going to be an advantage to guys going into the NBA. But what's happened is all these guys I've watched have ended up busting. Yes, what I, and so I've ended up developing the theory that it's actually the opposite. Because you're allowing these players to play in positions that maximize their talent versus... And you're analyzing them against players who are in dreadful offenses that don't give them the room to operate and show their skills that you might overestimate what they are a little bit. So ball kind of falls into that category for me that that those would be my only two concerns about about what he does. Yeah, so I went with a five also, but I want to push back a little bit on the idea that the offense he played in sort of overrepresents how good he is because he is that offense. Like, he is an offense unto himself if you let him play the way Chino Hills played and the way UCLA played. If you say, go get out and run and look for the best possible shot as early as possible and, you know, infect this team with your, um, you know, with your passing and your vision and, and your, you know, general unselfishness, that is going to shine through. Like He is that kind of player. And I think that the system, if you tell him to go do that, it will look very much the same as it did for him in high school and in college. The, the way it becomes different is if you say, we're going to put you in a different offense. You're going to walk the ball up the court. You're going to maybe pass the ball to the side and then go stand in the corner for 15 seconds. Um, and, and then at that point, it would be, yeah, that's an over-representation uh, of his true talent because he's not being allowed to do the things that he's best at. But in in terms of the way he actually plays, if you let him play that way, um, he is going to make an instant impact on your offense. Like He's that good of an offensive player. I think even if he's a mid to high 30s three-point shooter as opposed to you know the over 40% that he shot while he was at UCLA, uh, his passing and his vision and the the tempo he establishes uh, will help his team's offense pretty much right away, even if there are you know some other concerns about you know his ability to create for himself off the dribble and you know the the tightness of his handle and the defensive uh, concerns that we'll get to later on. Um, he just has such a strong effect offensively that I that I have to go I, with. I'm a, I'm a believer in his even with the bad free throw percentage and the funky. Funky shot. I am actually a believer in his spot up shooting because if you really watch closely, his release is clean, even though the way he gets there mm -hmm. is a little awkward. Yes, I would agree. It's the it's the load that causes the issue because of that. You know, he brings it up basically from to the side of his left hip, uh, and then it comes up that way. And you know, the wrist flick looks like a normal wrist flick, but the way it gets there, uh, you know, sort of gets in the way, and he can't really offload it going to the right. You know, like I mentioned with Sam earlier in the podcast, he took one shot off the dribble going to his right uh, all season in terms of a pull-up jumper. You know, he took a couple layups and floaters, but... Um, like and and that's, cer that's certainly a counter. Um, you know, if he develops a, a floater game, especially a one-hand floater game driving to his right, that uh, that is definitely a way to counter the fact that he probably won't be able to shoot off the dribble going that way. But... Anyway, let's uh, let's move on to the next section. Where did you come with star potential? And uh, and just to remind people, for this section, we did this a little bit differently. 
your star potential ranking is about you know the potential for the highest possible impact the guy will have ranked from one to five and mine is the likelihood that he'll become a star level contributor so you get a, a more coherent idea of the totality of the star impact of the player where do you come down on this one i can i'll, I'll go much guess. In a week scale, like his passing is and the potential to be a reasonably decent three-point shooter i mean it's 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 there it's just how it's just what it, it there's just no obviously there's no guarantees but the, the skills are there for him to be an extremely high impact player if he's allowed to use his skills in the correct fashion yeah i mean certainly i would agree in terms of the the ceiling maxing out like the, the ceiling there is, you know, one of the five best point guards in the league just because of the effect that he has offensively. And I think that there's the defensive potential there as well, if not necessarily on the ball, then, you know, in, in passing lanes and stuff like that. And we'll talk about that later on. Um, for me, in the, you know, the likelihood of him being a star, it's so situation dependent. Like, I can't stress enough that if you try to force him to play in some slow-it-down offense, you like there's no point in even having him on your team if that's your plan. Like Just don't draft him if you're not going to let him do what he does. It's, it's like, uh, like they say with quarterbacks sometimes. Like, you know, if, if you're going to take Cam Newton and not build your offense around the fact that, that he can throw it deep and he can run, like... Why have Cam Newton on your team? It's the same thing with Lonzo. If you're not going to run and gun and let him get up and down the floor, don't have him. Um, and in that scenario, I think in terms of you know the star potential, it's a five. But the downside of a franchise taking him and not running that kind of offense makes me knock it down uh, to a four. Looks at the team we're talking about. Yeah. And look, this is something that I think is important for the Knicks because even though, and we'll talk about it when we get to the triangle later on, um, even though it's probably a short-term concern, if you haven't playing that for two years, there's no guarantee that when you suddenly unleash him two years from now that he's going to just be able to recapture the, the, you know, the, the spirit and the style and the skill set that he has right now. You know, it's 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 muscle memory and it's... You know, it's it's difficult to break habit like that. So I think it's really, really important that he plays in that style of offense right away. And the coach has played that style of offense before, but the yeah. other coach whose name is Phil Jackson and won't get out of the way doesn't like playing that way. All right, so next section. What have you got here for Lonzo's fit with Kristaps Porzingis? 72. Yeah, it's super high. Like, it is, um, you know, the the offensive fit, uh, and, you know, this is something we talked about with Fultz. You know, the one differentiation there is that Fultz is going to do a better job of creating for himself, and that's something that um, I think is important because it'll make the defense react to the player with the ball and not just to Chris Stapps on the pop. Um, but Lonzo is going to be looking like if these guys wind up on the same team, he's going to be looking for Chris Stapps just all the time, figuring out how he could get him easy baskets, whether it's from threes in transition dunks, anything like this dude loves getting shots for his teammates, whether it's directly or via the hockey assist. And, and I think, you know, Lonzo wasn't a great pick and roll player at UCLA. Like he was a pretty good one. They didn't run, a ton of like straight spread offense, high pick and roll for him in the half court. But you put him with Kristaps, all of a sudden he has so much more room to operate off the dribble. Um, that hitch in his jumper becomes a little bit less of a problem because he's got more space because the defense is concentrating on Kristaps. And, you know, you give him space and because of the vision that he has, he's going to take advantage of it, uh, you know, pretty much every time. They, I, I, it's tough to think of a more perfect uh, point guard in terms of you know his mentality and his skill set. Uh, you know, the only thing you would want is that is that Fultz style shot creation uh, for himself. But other than that, he is a perfect, perfect fit, certainly on offense. 
And, uh, you know, as we'll talk about with the defensive potential, uh, I think that there's room for them uh, to be you, good on that. I'm not just going to repeat stuff that you just said, but the distinction you did make between Fultz and Ball is why one's clearly number one and the other's not on that level. Yeah, um, you know, and, and I talked about this with Sam. I think that if a team decided that it was going to play that UCLA way, play that Chino Hills way, and was like, in order to do that, we have to take Lonzo, then, like, it wouldn't be the craziest decision in the history of the world to take Lonzo at number one. I, I still wouldn't do it. But, like, you know, if, if that was the way you were going to go and you were like, in order to do that, we should get the guy who's already done it, um, you know, I could see the logic even though I would still take Fultz. But that that certainly is the separation is that Fultz has that additional skill and in addition to not not just creating for himself, like, going to the basket, but pulling up off the dribble, whether from three or from mid-range or, in the, you know, the short jumpers or floaters, um, that's the, the big differentiator to me. But either way, Lonzo is uh, a beautiful fit with Chris Stapps, uh, especially on offense. And I'm not sure we even have to go no, too no, much you, more you, into you that. No, no, you explained that beautifully, so there's really, I'm not going to there's, – there's no reason for me to say anything there. You, you, you hit on it. So fives for both of us on that one as well. Uh, where did you come down for defensive potential for him one to five? Even if he wasn't, I mean, UCLA was an atrocious defensive team, and Ball wasn't. You could not excuse Ball from that. But he has good length. He has good size. If he learn, if he can put all his tools together and work on it, there's. There's the there's the outline of a good defensive player there. It's just how whether it comes along or not. Yeah, I went with a, a three point five. Um, I definitely agree. He has good size, good length. He has good instincts. Um, he has sort of like bouncy athleticism, but not really sudden enough athleticism, like. I think if he winds up guarding point guards, I could easily see them running in him into screens over and over and him not necessarily being able to stay in front of them off the dribble. But I think the good thing is he's 6'6", and if you want to put him off the ball and tell him to just hawk passing lanes, I think that could work. So I think certainly there's the potential for him to be an above-average defender in terms of being able to get steals, working in the passing lanes, even coming over. Like I think he'll be a pretty good shot blocker for a guard as well. Uh, if he can put himself into position to do it. Uh, I do think that he might struggle a bit on the ball, uh, specifically in pick and rolls, even though he does have good size and length, because I'm not sure he can stay with the, the quickest guards off the dribble, and that's certainly an issue in today's NBA. But with his size, you could, uh, also, NBA. You, could, you could hide that by shifting him over to guard twos. Right, well, that's that's what I said, you know, and, and just asking him to hawk the passing lanes, I think. And that's why I still went with you know an above average grade there, but I think it's more slightly above average than you know above average. So that's that's why I came down on a three point five rather than a rather than a four. Um, so next section is gonna be super confusing because I actually have two different grades for it. Um, <laughs> we're we're talking about the fit in the triangle offense, and as I've mentioned on the previous podcasts. This is a short-term concern, but a very real one because Phil Jackson is like freakishly devoted to it. So, <laughs> where did you come down on triangle so, offense this, fit from uh, one to five? I had trouble with this one too because he can fit in the triangle, but that's not maximizing his skills. He can do the spot shooting. Uh, he's going to be able to do entry passes. You could probably throw him in the post against. Smaller. I haven't watched him if he has the ability to do that. But even if he can't even score out of it, using that, and just naturally, when like a big guy, a big guard posts up on a smaller guard, teams just out of instinct will kind of collapse, even if it's just a little bit, and that could be used as a vehicle to move the ball around the perimeter and get an open shot. So he can pretty much do anything you ask him to do in the triangle. But... That's not what's best for Ball. 
as a player. So because of that, I just went kind of right in the middle with a, a slightly above right in the middle with a three. Yeah, so I would agree. He has every single skill you want from a player that's going to be a guard in the triangle offense. And I think even if he's not necessarily a post scorer, I agree with you. Teams are going to send help at a 6-6 guard in the post. And if you send help at Lonzo from pretty much anyone on the floor, he's going to find the open man. That's what he does. He can hit the spot-ups. He can run the backside pick-and-roll. He is a really, really smart and instinctual player uh, in the half court as well as in the full court. And he would be, you know, great at running, you know, those those cutting actions that you have as a triangle guard. And everything you would ask him to do, he would do well. On the other hand, if you take a player like this and you put him in the triangle offense, you are a fucking moron and you should be fired immediately. Like... Uh, it's it is hard to express how stupid it would be to do that. It would be even dumber than taking a seven three guy that can shoot from thirty feet out and sticking his ass in the post for twenty possessions a game. Like it it would honestly be even dumber to put Lonzo Ball in the triangle than it is to put Chris Stapps in the triangle. Like. No joke, if you took him and then said at your next press conference, we're still going to run the triangle, I would recommend you be fired on the spot. Like that is, that is how strongly I believe this. It would be so outrageously stupid. So because he has all the skills at a five, and because it would be literally the dumbest thing on the face of the earth, and I give it like a negative 42,000, um, I still knocked it down to a four, because even if they put him in it, he would be good at it, but it would be so fucking stupid that it's with, not even worth talking about. With Chris Stops in the triangle, I see the value in having him work in some of those areas for future development. Lonzo in the triangle, I don't see those. That doesn't that doesn't do anything for me, even for future for future development. There, there is legitimately no benefit, no reason you could come up with at all to do it. Like, it, it's, it, it would be monstrously stupid. Like, it's making me physically angry to even talk about it for, for this long. Like, it would be so dumb. Misreported. Let's. So, uh, no, I'm not yeah, um, looking at Twitter right, or anything, so. so. For people who are gonna get excited about uh, when the Nick when the Knicks win the lottery and get the number one pick, they are scheduled to meet with projected top pick Markel Folds in Chicago during the NBA draft combine. Well, yeah, I would imagine that every team that has uh, even a nominal chance to get the number one pick is Phil gonna Jackson meet with Markel Folds at the combine. To meet with him. Who cares? It kind of matters. Good God. Ugh, I'm just... Sure, it it matters. Um, yeah, it matters. Yeah, you, you're, your president should be attending these things. Yeah, you would hope, but, you know, it doesn't always work out that way. Can't always get what you want, Brian. Anyway, um... Let's move on to the last question here for Alonzo. Do you think he can potentially be better than Porzingis? I think this is a really tough one because of he's a very unique kind of player too. So I'm, I'm interested with, to no, know your answer I just, here. I said I said it at the beginning. There's only one player in this draft I think can be better than KP, and that's Fultz. I don't think any outside look. Um, even Fultz isn't as well rounded, but. His offense could be so good that it could overtake the defense. As good as I think Ball can be, I just think KP does more to impact the game, and he won't ever get to that level. Yeah, I said at the beginning that I have three guys that I said potentially yes. Uh, this is the third after Markel Fultz and Josh Jackson. Um I think that if you let him play that style of offense and he reaches his peak, um, a point guard 
running that offense just because of how much control point guards have in the offense these days is just so valuable. Uh, and even though he would make Chris Stapps better, I think Chris Stapps would make him better also. And I think the potential's there for him to be an above-average defender as well. And if you're talking about a guy whose ceiling is, you know, top five offensive point guard with above-average defense because he can handle himself on the ball and is also really good at passing lanes and can block the occasional shot, um, I do think there is potential for that player to be better than Chris Stapps. And that involves Chris Stapps maybe not hitting his full peak, but, you know, there is a balancing act there. I do, I do think there is a world where Ball winds up a better player, and that's sort of how I attacked uh, the question. Whereas, you know, the other guys, um, other than uh, Fultz and Jackson and Ball, I, I didn't think that that world existed. So this was one of the few guys that I answered the question yes, even though I don't think it's necessarily the most yeah, likely I, I get your, what, what you're saying is very completely rational and fair. You're damn right it is. <laughs> anyway, that's uh, that's going to do it for Lonzo Ball. Coming up next, we're going to have Jonathan Isaac from the worst school in the country, Florida State University. Brian, thanks for doing this, man. <laughs>